you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to the book of Jeremiah. We will be studying chapter 31, verses 15 to 26. There's a section of Jeremiah 15 to 26 that may be the most difficult to interpret and translate in the entire book of Jeremiah, so I will do my best to tell you what I think it means, of course. It will be edifying, I know that. So let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of Jeremiah 31 and the preaching. Father, we come before you. We've already worshipped you this morning. We have already enjoyed this day. And Father, we are finishing your day up by feasting on your word and soon to take a meal. And we will feast, Father, on your Son, Christ. And Father, we pray that you would be with us as we prepare our hearts to feast on Christ. We pray, O oh God, that as we read through your prophet Jeremiah, the one that wrote of your Son and to your Son, Father, that we would see your Son clearly in this text as we go over difficult passages we pray, O oh God, that our pain would not be wasted. That we know we have a good, sovereign, and wise God. And we know we have a spirit that can comfort us. So, Father, we pray that you would comfort us tonight. May our tears not be wasted. May our work not be in vain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 31, verses 15 to 26. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For after I have turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace in my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guidepost. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all his cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul 
and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. And thus is the reading of the very words of God. I was in my office a couple weeks ago, and in my home office I have a closet, and I was in my closet, and there's a shelf on one side and a safe on the other, and I was going through things on my shelf, and I saw this camouflage duffel bag. To you, it's just some raggedy, camouflage duffel bag. I started to cry because that was my older brother's duffel bag. And for some reason, I ended up with it. And for some reason, out of the blue, I started thinking about my brother. Can't talk on the phone with him anymore. Can't talk to him at all. No more discussions about The Walking Dead. No more discussions about Calvinism and he's debating people online. And then I started thinking about the lie that I was told. That time will heal all wounds. It doesn't. It's a lie. Time does not heal all wounds. Rachel, in this passage, died in misery and pain. Longing to have children. Longing to be blessed as Abraham. She married into this family with Jacob. She believed the promises. She wanted to see descendants. She never got to enjoy any of that. Weeping and crying, she took that pain and wound to the grave. Many of you have wounds and pains, and you will take them with you to the grave, like Rachel. And the only thing that really heals us of our wounds is Revelation 21. The new heavens and the new earth. John will tell us that he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. There's no longer any sea. Then he saw that holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. And what does Jesus do? He wipes away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death mourning, crying, and pain for the older things will be passed away. When you read Jeremiah 31 and you see the pain of Rachel, yes, God will make things right when her children come back to the land and they're reunited with, with Judah, but that does not ultimately come to fruition until Jesus Christ returns. The weeping of Rachel is still heard today. The anguish of this earth. The earth is subjected to futility today. And we still see Gentiles coming in, coming to Christ. That's partly answering her prayers. That's partly quieting the crying of Rachel, but yet we will not see it until Jesus Christ returns. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things here in this passage. The first thing I want you to see is pain. The second thing I want you to see is promise. And the third thing I want you to see is preservation. Pain, promise, and preservation. As we look at the first part of this sermon, I was, I was reminded of a game that I played when I was a junior in high school. It was not a region game. 
So they needed someone to pitch for a long time against this other team. It's pretty good. And they said, Travis, we need you to pitch against this team. We need you to pitch a long time. And, and I was okay. I was probably a C-minus baseball player. I could throw the ball decently hard. And I remember throwing that first pitch. It was a strike. The second pitch, the guy hit it out of the park. I was like, oh, no. It's going to be a long day. Another guy hit a dinker, another guy hit a dinker, and I was going to blow the fourth batter away. I was like, he can't hit me. And he hits it out of the park. Well, there was a bunch of errors and, and did get some outs here or there. And finally, you know, coach came out. He said, we're going to keep you in. You're okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Finally, the number one batter came back up. And lo and behold, if he didn't hit another home run off me, coach took me out, put someone else in, and I sat there all by myself. No one said a word to me. After the game, there's only one person that said I was amazing. And I did a great job. And that was my mom. <laughs> Travis, you were the best on that field. Really? Did you watch the same game I was watching? I literally ruined the game for us. I did. My actions led to the ruining of the game. Moms have this way to look past everything and love their children like nothing else. Rachel longed for children. See, part of this weeping is you need to understand that Rachel longed for years and years and years and years to have those children. She had patience and patience, and oftentimes her patience wore thin. She saw her sister having four children. She brings in the, the servants, and then they're having children. seems that everybody was having children but her. And, you know, she really believed, I believe she really believed the promises of Abraham. She married into this godly line of family. She married into this family that she knew that Abraham would have descendants. And here she is believing that promise that God gave, and it seems that she's not getting any of the blessings. She's not getting any of those promises. Like, I believe this. And she wanted to believe it. She wanted to partake in those blessings. And she wanted to be a part of all of those promises. And eventually, she got pregnant, of course, and had Joseph. She said, one's not enough. I want to have a part of the blessing of the descendants. And she was pregnant again. And she was in Bethel. If you remember anything about Bethel, that's where Jacob's ladder took place. That's where Abraham first lived there in Bethel. And she was making her way down to Bethlehem. And you read this in Genesis 35. And she makes it right to the northern border. There wasn't a northern border there and a southern border. It was just Benjamin's territory. Right? That's where... She gave birth to her final son and died. Died in misery. Part of her misery was she was never able to experience those blessings, though she believed in them. Dreams, goals, all dead. Her pain was real. It was so real that Jeremiah picks up on it. The great prophet Jeremiah picks up on it. 
and uses it as an example of what pain is when children go astray, when children don't live for the Lord. Matthew also picks up on it and says, Jeremiah is speaking about Herod who goes into Bethlehem and murders those babies because he's trying to kill Jesus. He wants the king dead. You see this in three different parts of Scripture. Very early, in the middle, and almost toward the end. Rachel still speaks today. Her pain still speaks today. Look at verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The worst sound you'll ever hear is mother crying for her children. You won't hear more scary cry. Rachel, seeing her children are no more, weeps. Here she is once again, thousand years later, weeping again for her children because her children have rejected the very God that she believed in her whole entire life. She believed in her God. And here comes the Babylonians marching down. And as they march down and collect the children of Judah, they march them north, right past the Benjamin territory, right in verses 20 of Genesis 35, Jacob set a stone monument over Rachel's grave, and it can be seen to this day. They had to walk past Rachel's grave to get to Babylon. Metaphorically, they saw weeping Rachel. They hurt her. She's still crying because her children are no more. They're not in the very land that she longed for and cried for and prayed for over and over and over again. And then we read in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. God is telling her the same thing that Paul tells us, your labor is not in vain. I wish there was a way to make that a double entendre there. Your labor's not in vain, but it's not in the Greek, but it sounds really good in English, doesn't it? Your labor's not in vain. There is a reward for your work. God sees your heart. God sees your labor. God sees what you're doing. You have to understand the results are up to God. He is looking at the heart. And the reason he tells Rachel to no longer weep is because your rebellious children are going to come home. They're going to come home. They're going to make it. Verse 17, there's a hope for future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. 
you have to understand that her son, of course, was Joseph, and Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and we know from last week that was the crossing, and Ephraim was the one that had the majority of the numbers of the tribes. Where are they now? There's a couple men in our church who have Jewish blood running through their veins. Seems that everyone has some of a little drop of the northern ten tribes. They're scattered all over the world. How is this going to come true? How is Rachel no longer going to weep? You need to understand one of the major parts of the new covenant, this prophecy that we read in chapter 31, is that the northern ten tribes will be reunited with Judah under one king. And we see that in Christ. She is weeping less and less and less as all her children, all the tribes are coming in, being grafted back in. It's a beautiful sight to see how Christ brings us into the fold. He tells her, weep no more, Rachel, there's hope. And we know ultimately one day, because of the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more tears. Every bit of pain that you've ever suffered, every bit of agony will be no more. Which brings us to the second part of this sermon where we look at the promise. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Travis, I have read verses 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and it's about repentance, not promise. You're trying to do some neat alliteration thing that your preachers learned in seminary. You wanted to change the R to a P, so you just found a P word and you make it sound right. We get your joke. We, get your, we know what you're doing. You're trying to pass that homiletics class. That's all you really want to do. I put promise on purpose. I'm going to tell you why. Because before you can repent, you have to believe the promise. You don't clean yourself up and then come to Christ. You come to Christ and then you get cleaned up. That's the reason you put promise first and not repentance. Read verse 18 with me. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. Why did they feel this way? Why did they feel convicted of their sins in the first place? How did they know that it was the God of the universe that would bring them back? See, before you actually repent, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and changes your heart. If any of you today, I'll quote Sproul, have this little inkling that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, just a little tiny inkling. Do you think that came from you? It came from the Holy Spirit, God himself. We see right here this whosoever, this universal call. Right? It goes out. Whoever comes up here and preaches will tell you, just as John Carr said this morning in Sunday school, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how much sin you have. 
You can't outsend God's love. You turn to Christ, and He will make you whole, and He will make you clean. See, the promise is what you need to believe that Jesus is a God that saves. Ephraim, as wicked as they were, knew that God was a God that saved. All they had to do was go back. They knew that. And this is what took place in verse 19. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. They knew they had sinned. They knew they turned back to God. This is what repentance is. This is leaving your sin and, and turning to Christ. How do you know if you turn to Christ? Well, you really don't like your sin anymore. I haven't met one person who loves Jesus, who also loves their sin. When I meet someone who loves Jesus, they say, I hate my sin, I wish it would go away. And sometimes we have to tell you, well, well one day, <laughs> when, your, when your tears stop. Look at verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son, this wicked, wicked people? Is he my darling child? Of course he is. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Even, even though God disciplines him, he still remembers him. His heart still yearns for him. Have you, have you seen the love of God in chapter 31 yet? I've preached on it for three sermons already. I might make it a fourth but I don't have all night. He's loving Ephraim, though he's wicked. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Look at verse 21. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guidepost. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these, your cities. You ever walked in the woods? I've gotten lost a lot. I can tell stories. But you try to mark a tree... Like, okay, I remember that tree. That one looks really, really funny. It's got, you remember that tree. That one when you're walking back, oh, that's the tree I remember. Or, oh, that's the lake. I remember that part of the lake. This is what God is saying. Remember that tree. Remember that road. Because you're coming back. I want you to remember this, the Lord is saying. Which brings us to verse 22, which may be the hardest verse to interpret in all of Jeremiah. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. There's a man named William Holliday who wrote a commentary on Jeremiah that's not like the other commentaries. When you read commentaries, they often tell you a lot of application. They tell you what's going on. But every now and then you'll read one that's like five times as thick and deals with every single Hebrew clause. And he really gets into the weeds and he's speaking and he, and he goes into detail. And this is William Holiday, one of the greatest scholars in Jeremiah. He's got a really odd view on this passage. Calvin, who's also a world-class scholar, he believes that Israel will be greater than Babylon. I just take the view that Jerome and most of the early church takes, and I would say probably the commentaries lean toward. This is what the view I take on it. It may be eisegesis. Exegesis is actually taking the text and, and, and telling you really, really what the author's intent was. 
eisegesis is, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but it's good eisegesis, right? If you're going to eisegete a passage, make sure you're having good theology with it. What I think this is saying is what Daniel Peacock, my wife, said this morning. God had to do what? Something new. A man had to represent us being human without the DNA of Adam, yet still be human. Try to remember exactly her verbiage. It was much better than mine. What I think is happening is this is a messianic promise of the Son of God, the virgin birth being circled with the man. That may be eisegesis, but it's absolutely true theology. I can tell you that. And it's very helpful to see that because that is something new. Never before had a virgin had a baby. So I will end verse 22 with saying that's what I think it says. Which brings us to the third part of the sermon. Preservation. Oftentimes when reform men preach, we like to talk about perseverance. If you know the tulip, P stands for perseverance of the saints. There's, there's a promise that when you come to the Lord, you will persevere. You will make it to glory. You may drop a few times, but you'll eventually make it. Uh, you may, may come down a bit, but you're going to make it. The reason I chose preservation is because ultimately it's not you that is persevering. It is the God of the universe and Christ that is preserving you. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. If you've been studying Jeremiah with me, you know that God says, I'm the one doing this, not you. I'm the one that gets the glory. God says, I'm the one that does this for you. God's the one that restores their fortunes. God is the one that forgives their sin. God is the one that preserves them and brings them back to the land. If you make it to glory, it will be because God has preserved you. Look at this. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all his cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. There will be beauty when Israel and Judah come back in Jerusalem, at the holy hill, worshiping the ever-living God under one King, Jesus Christ. And that King will satisfy their weary soul. More than food, shelter, any type of sexual gratification you think you may have. It's Christ and Christ alone that satisfies your soul. More than anything else you could ever have. Which brings us to our conclusion. There's been times in my life where not only the grief has been bad, but I remember one time overseas that I won't get into where I was actually afraid to sleep. It wasn't very good sleep. You've read books and you've heard men in this congregation who, in, who've had the same experience. Many of them were overseas at war. Maybe you are a person that 
can't sleep because of worrying or maybe because of nightmares. Look what verse 26 says. At this, I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Jeremiah sees chaos all around him. He is the writer of Lamentations. I'm sorry, I don't know why I keep saying that. He sees chaos all around him. And right in the middle of the book, he can sleep. Oh yes, Babylon's coming. They're going to destroy everything. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to take the people away. And he's like, well, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is good, knowing that God is all wise and everything that he does is the perfect way to do it, knowing that a virgin is going to have a baby and that Christ will die for our sins, knowing that Jesus Christ has taken care of everything. You know what I can do? I think I'm going to have some good sleep tonight. I pray and hope that you can lay your head on your pillow and have that same sleep Jeremiah had, knowing that God is a good God, knowing that when you take your last breath and the Lord returns, every tear will be wiped away. Just as he silences the tears of Rachel, he will silence our tears through the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word.